0: Hello, and thank you for connecting with us here at Oasis Online. If this ministry is an encouragement to you, I would love to hear from you. Would you send me an email at pastor at I hope you enjoy the service today and that God would speak directly to your heart. When we think of their two sons, Cain and Abel, we think of Cain, a farmer. We think of Abel a shepherd, even before mankind ate meat. When it came time for them to bring a sacrifice to God, to present themselves to God, Cain was angry because Abel brought a lamb and was accepted. Abel shed blood, and he was accepted by God. Cain was so angry, if God wants a blood sacrifice, I'll give him one. He killed his brother. So that when God comes by, he says, where is your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? God says, his blood is crying out to me from the ground. We think then of mankind becoming wicked and evil, God raising up Noah to build an ark. 8 of his family is on that ark along with 2 of every clean animal, 7 of every uh, 2 of every unclean animal, 7 of every clean animal. And we see God bring a flood and destroy everything in which the breath of life is. When we get then to the end of the flood, the ark comes to rest. And in Genesis chapter 8, the first thing that Noah does when he comes off that ark is he makes a sacrifice. He sheds blood. He burns that sacrifice and it becomes a sweet savor in the nostrils of God. He literally starts the race of man over with the shedding of blood. We think then of one of Noah's descendants, Abraham, whom God calls out of his father's house, go to the land that I will show you. Abraham does that, goes into the land, and he goes to the little town of Morah, teacher, in the land of Canaan. And there he offers a sacrifice and calls upon the name of the Lord. The reason this town is named Morah, if you have news to give, you give it. If you want to hear the news, you hear it. So he goes there, and he starts his first time there in that land with the shedding of blood. We think then in Genesis chapter 22, he and Sarah have been barren for many years, have no children. They they have Isaac, their only son, and God says, take your only son Isaac and sacrifice him. Abraham is obedient. That's how we know Abraham belonged to God. That's how we know he had God's law written in his heart. Because he goes, he's willing to sacrifice, and when he got the knife up to plunge it into the chest of Isaac, God stops him and provides a, a substitute, a ram in a thicket, and he offers that. He sheds blood. And Then we think of the night when all of Abraham's descendants are in the land of Egypt, it's the night that they are to come out of Egypt. And what are they to do? Take a lamb, put it on the doorpost and the lentil of the door so that when the death angel passes over, they will be free. And they do that, and they begin their life as free people with the shedding of blood. And so we see that trail that goes through the beginning of the Bible all the way up to the giving of the law. Now, in Leviticus chapter 23 we have a Jewish calendar. And I want to put Yom Kippur in its proper place on the Jewish calendar. In that passage of Scripture, God gives them seven feasts that they are to observe. In the authorized, or the King James version of the Bible, they're called feasts. That's a translation from the Hebrew word moed, which literally means appointment. Then they're also called Mekra in the hebrew or Mekra in the hebrew which means that they are rehearsals so each one of these seven is an appointment that god is going to keep between himself and his people which they are to rehearse at their appropriate time of the year on the calendar there are three that are spring feasts or appointments they happen in march or april There is one that is a summer appointment. It happens at the end of May, beginning of June. And there are three that are fall feasts or appointments. And they happen in the month of Tishri on the Jewish calendar or this month of September. When we look back at those three spring feasts, and I have some items set up here on my table to represent these, I have here the shank bone of a lamb because in the month, end of May, beginning, or, or excuse me, end of April, beginning of May, we have the feast of Passover, the night that they put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. So I have the shank bone of a lamb here to represent that. That is to take place on Nisan, the month of Nisan, and the 14th day of that month. Then in Leviticus chapter 23, it says one day later, on Nisan the 15th, they were to begin eating unleavened bread, bread with no yeast or leaven in it. Yeast or leaven is a representation of sin. So one day after Passover, they were to begin eating unleavened bread for a period of seven days. So that's the second spring feast or appointment. The third one is interesting, and unlike the first two, which can happen on any day day, of the week, depending on the year that you're looking at, this third one is called the Feast of first fruits, and it's the first gleaning of the barley harvest. The priest goes out, he makes the first gleaning of the barley, and no one else can glean until he brings this back into the tabernacle or the temple. It's a wave offering, he holds it up, it has come from God, he has given it to the people to sustain them, and then he gives it back to God as a first offering. Now this one is different in that it always, and you can read this in Leviticus 23, it always happens on the first day after the first Sabbath after Passover. What's the day after the Sabbath, which is Saturday? The first day of the week. So this always happens on the first day of the week after the first Sabbath after Passover. So these are the spring, three spring Feasts or appointments on the Jewish calendar. Then as we read on in the book of Leviticus chapter 23, we find the one summer feast. They are to count seven Sabbaths. Seven Sabbaths, that's seven weeks. There's seven days to the week, 49 days, plus one day. So again, it's the day after the seventh Sabbath on a Sunday, and we have the feast called the Feast of Shabuas, the Feast of Weeks. And there the priest goes out. He makes the first gleaning of the wheat harvest. He brings it back to the temple of the tabernacle. This time he grinds it into flour. And with that flour, he makes two leavened loaves of bread that are a wave offering. The wheat came from the Lord to sustain the people of Israel. He gives it back as a first fruits offering to the Lord. And then the wheat harvest can commence. So that's the one summer feast. And then if we go six months from Passover all the way up to the month of Tishri, the month of September, which we are in now, we come to the first feast on Tishri I, which was last Monday evening. And it's called Rosh Hashanah, Rabbinical Judaism has called that. Rosh means head, Hashanah of the year. It's the Jewish Civil New Year. If you're reading in Leviticus 23, it's called the Feast of Trumpets or Yam Trua. And so literally, what you would have heard if you were at the, the temple, we live about two minutes from Temple Bet Shalom up in Summerlin, you would have heard the, uh, the, the rabbi do something like this. And you would have heard him do it about a hundred times. It's a holiday or feast of remembrance, God remembering his people Israel. And as I said, we're in the days of awe, the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Tishri the 10th of Yom Kippur, and I have a bottle here with what looks like blood in it, because in Leviticus 23, it commands them to carry out Yom Kippur, which is listed in Leviticus chapter 16, and that's what I will be doing for you today. This is the most holy day on the Jewish calendar next to the Sabbath, because it's the day that atonement is made for the sins of the people of Israel. So this is the tenth feast, or excuse me, this is the sixth appointment and feast on the tenth of Tishri. Then they're to count five days, and on the fifth day, they're to build a sukkah. A sukkah is simply a structure, a temporary structure, with branches of a tree. You put the branches up on the top so that you can see the stars at night, it's a temporary dwelling. <clears throat> they also have what they call a lulav that's made out of three different uh, elements of tree branch along with a citron. And it's a time of uh, celebrating the ingathering of the summer fruits. And it's a time of fellowshipping one with another. And there's different rituals that are carried on at Sukkot. So after Yom Kippur is done, five days later up at Temple Bet Shalom, they will have a huge sukkah that they build out in back of their temple. So those are the seven holidays or appointments between God and his people. And at the end today, I want to come back and briefly go through each one of these. If it's an appointment, you know, there's got to be a time when it's fulfilled. Let's say you have an appointment this coming Wednesday at the doctor's office. So let's say it's at 10 o'clock. Let's say you get up tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, get yourself ready. You go to the doctor's office. Well, let's say if I do that. I get there and they say, Mr. Kraft, your appointment's not until Wednesday. Come back Wednesday. I go home. I get up Tuesday. I get myself ready. I go to the doctor's office and they say, Mr. Kraft, we told you yesterday. Your appointment's not until Wednesday. Wednesday. I get up Wednesday, I get myself ready, I go to the doctor's office, I see the doctor, have my appointment, I go home. I get up Thursday, get myself ready, go to the doctor's office, and they say, Mr. Kraft, you had your appointment yesterday, you sure you don't want to go see the psychiatrist down the hall? That appointment takes place at only one time. And so at the end, we'll look and see which of these appointments have been kept between God and his people, and which are yet to be kept. I want to go back and give you a little bit of background on the tabernacle, the layout that we have here before you today. It's in the book of Exodus that God uh, gave Moses up on Mount Sinai the dimensions for the tabernacle. What I have laid out here and what they actually built is something that God gave Moses a glimpse of, the heavenly tabernacle, And so he had him constructed. The word tabernacle literally means place of meeting. God wanting to meet with his people Israel. The presence of God with Israel was uh, demonstrated, and we have it up there in the PowerPoint, of a pillar of cloud by day over the holy of holies uh, and a pillar of fire by night. And the tabernacle would have been constructed right in the very center of the camp. The people of Israel were to provide all of the materials to build it, and the construction of it took about two years. With the completion of it, uh, it tells us in the Scripture that the Shekinah glory of the presence of the Lord inaugurated it as uh, he filled the courtyard and the outer court of the tabernacle. And it was the responsibility of the Levites, the priests, to build the tabernacle. Each one, they they say uh, they estimated that it could be broken down into about 8,000 parts, so you had your part that you had to be responsible for. Uh, they estimate they could take it apart in a half an hour if they had to leave, and when they got to the next place, they could put it up in about a half an hour. They had it down to a science. The outer courtyard of the tabernacle, where you see the, the drapery that goes around the outside, it's about... 75, uh, 150 feet this way and 75 feet this way. Uh, It was made up that outer cloth was a linen material that was about seven and a half feet tall, and there was a pillar each seven and a half feet, and there were copper sockets that those pillars rested in. The opening of the tabernacle, which would be back along that side, the eastern side, was about 30 feet wide. Moses and Aaron lived right outside and all of the Levites lived right around the tabernacle. They were like a buffer zone. They were the only ones that could go that close. The tabernacle itself is a U-shaped structure that's underneath this covering and it had four different coverings on the top of it. The first covering inside of it was made of linen material and it had the same colors that you see On this little placard up here, the blue, the white, the scarlet, the purple, and the blue, there were two sections of those that were held together by golden rings, and that was the inner covering. And in fact, they would say that that would be the actual tabernacle, that piece of linen material. And it was under there that the holy objects were. Over the top of that then was Ram's uh, uh, hair that was dyed brown. And over the top of that was Ram's skin that was dyed red. And then there was another layer of skin over the top of that, a more protective layer. Uh, Could we have the next slide, please? The tabernacle itself, so this is the outer courtyard, and the tabernacle itself, this area in here, was constructed of 48 Golden-covered boards. They were made of acacia wood, about 2 inches thick, 2 feet wide, and 15 inches tall. On the north side, there were 20 boards. On the south side, there were 20 boards, set upright, joining each other. Along the back, there were 6 boards, and there were 2 extra boards at the corners. And it's very interesting because when we think about the two corner pieces out here according to exodus chapter 27 verse 14 these two corner posts are called katef which literally means shoulder when we think of these 20 boards along each side in exodus chapter 26 they're called sela or ribs so we have shoulders and ribs and when we think of the two extra boards at the back They're called Yarecha, or hips. So literally, God gave them a picture of a body, and on Yom Kippur, the blood had to be taken into that body, and the sacrifice had to be made. So Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, deals with that area and that place where God wanted to meet with his people. At the open end of the tabernacle, there was a hanging that came halfway down. It had these same colors on them of blue, white, scarlet, purple, and blue. And it covered the doorway about halfway down. Inside, then, the area that is the Holy of Holies, and I have it marked off with these lamps up here, it was about a 15 foot square or cubic area. And it had a veil that went across the front of it that had these same colors of blue, white, scarlet, purple, and red. But embroidered in the cloth with golden thread were cherubims. The outer portion of this was about 35 feet long. So if this is where the veil came, the Holy of Holies, out to the end of these three chairs would be about the size and the width of exactly what the tabernacle was made up of those 48 acacia wood boards this first section is called the holy place of the tabernacle and behind the veil it is called the holy of holies the most holy place there were seven distinct materials that were used in the construction of the tabernacle about three tons of gold four tons of copper and about five tons of silver along with that an acacia wood there are about 300 yards of goat hair, 700 yards of linen, and 2,000 animal skins. So, in two years, they put all of this together, and it's hard to estimate what the value of all those materials would be. There are six pieces of furniture that are used in the tabernacle and in the courtyard. The first one out there with the four posts going up with the horns, is called the Brazen Altar. It's at the east end, right inside the door, when you walk in to the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was made of acacia wood, overlaid with copper. The sides were four and a half feet tall, and the copper was to protect the wood from the fire as they were burning their, their offerings. There were five different types of sacrifices that were carried out at the Brazen Altar. They would sacrifice a bullock. They would sacrifice goats. They would sacrifice heifers. They would sacrifice lambs and turtle doves. That's in in a decreasing order of value. Even the poorest of Israel were required to bring a sacrifice to God. When an offering was made and the blood of an animal was gathered in the bowl, it was usually sprinkled on the horns of the brazen altar, and then the blood would be poured out at the base of the altar. The animal's body then would be burned on the brazen altar. That procedure was followed every day of the year. If you brought that sacrifice, that's what the priest would do it would do with it. But the priest, the high priest, would take the blood on Yom Kippur inside of the holy place and he would make atonement not only for himself but for the sins of the people. The purpose of the brazen altar and the sacrifices that were carried out on that is found in the verse in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. It says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your soul, for it is the blood that makes an atonement or covering for your soul. Right past the brazen altar then would be the laver, and the laver was made of copper that was donated by the women of Israel. They were to donate their copper mirrors. It was beaten thin, and it was placed over acacia wood. The laver is the place where the priests would come and wash. They would have to wash both their hands and their feet before they carried out any service in the tabernacle. Failure to do that simple procedure might result in their death. It's a picture of them sanctifying themselves and preparing themselves to carry out their work as a priest. When we walk then into the holy place, past the end of the chairs there, we come to the objects that are there. The first thing that we would find on the south wall would be a gold menorah. It's estimated that it was made out of 125 pounds of gold, one piece of gold that was beaten into a seven-branched cam de labron. Every morning, the priest would go in, he would trim the wicks, he would light the menorah, make sure that it was filled with oil. It was the only light that was in the holy place. And to the Jewish people, it represented the presence of God amongst them. The seven branches, the perfect number, the perfect representation of God. Across the way, then, from the menorah would be the table of showbread, and I have the outline of it there. It, too, was made of acacia wood overlain with gold. It's called the table of showbread or face bread because each one of the tribes would donate a loaf of bread. And the bread was not small bread. It was about two inches thick and about so square, and they would be stacked up. And it's called the table of showbread because it was representing the people of Israel before the face of the Lord. There were also uh, goblets there on the table along with cruises of wine. And at the end of the Sabbath day, the priest, the high priest and all the priests would gather around that table. They would eat the bread and drink the wine. And it was symbolic to them of God's desire to have fellowship with them. Then in between the menorah and the table of showbread is what's called the altar of incense. And I have the outline dimensions of it there. It was acacia wood overlain with gold. And once again, because it's an altar, it has the horns at the four corners. Every morning, the high priest would go to the brazen altar and get burning coals from the altar. He would place it on the altar of incense, and he would put a special incense on the altar, and it would make a cloud of incense that would rise to the Lord. He would then, quote, 18 prayers to God, uh, thanking God, blessing God, honoring God, and, and the prayers going up would be a symbol of what he was doing in his heart before God. Behind the veil, then, and this veil, if you think of this placard being about 15 feet square and covering this whole front area, would be the most holy object in the tabernacle, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. It was acacia wood overlain with gold. It has the two cherubim at the top with their wings touching. And it was underneath that area where the, the mercy seat, where the presence of the Lord would appear. It's also there that the high priest would take the blood on the one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, behind the veil, sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for himself. And for his people. Next to the Sabbath day, the Day of Atonement is the most holy day of the year on the Jewish calendar. And it was on that day that atonement and cleansing was made for sin. Preparations had to begin early because there was only one man who could enter into the tabernacle on this day, the high priest. To the rest of the people, it was a day of rest, a Sabbath. They could do no work on that day. Only the high priest could work on that day. Leviticus 16 and verse 4 tells us that the high priest had special garments that were made for him. They didn't look like any different from any of the other priests, but he was the only one that could wear this outfit on that day. And I'm wearing what he would have worn. He had on four different garments, an undergarment, so that when he walked up the ramp, the brazen altar his nakedness would not be seen the simple white robe of a regular priest the sash that ties it together and the priestly miter on his head so he looked like any other priest on that day but he was the only one that could wear this set of garments by him doing this and not having on his high priestly garments he was showing humility he was humbling himself by doing this on yom kippur When everything was ready, including all of the necessary uh, things and animals and so on and so forth, uh, they began Yom Kippur. The people would be gathered at the eastern gate. They would be anxious to get a glimpse of what was going on inside, and they would also be anxious to know if atonement would be made for their sins on that day. Since the high priest is wearing holy garments to carry out this process, the first thing that he has to do is he has to sanctify himself at the laver and cleanse himself. So when I begin today, that's the first thing that I will do. He also has to get a, a group of animals. He has to get a bullock. He has to get two goats, and he has to get a ram that will be used in the sacrifices carried out on this day. So what I am going to do then is I'm going to prepare myself and we are going to carry out Yom Kippur. have to get the four animals. I'll take a block from you. and These animals are tied and tethered to the side of the brazen altar. I'll take a goat from you. I'll take another one from you. Thank you. These animals were watched. They were, had no blemishes in them. They were healthy. I'll take a goat from you. Thank you. So, everything is in readiness. Now, as the high priest, I must make atonement for myself and for the high priestly family. So, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to take the bullock representing my family. And since I'm the only one in here, I have to control it myself. I have to get it down on the ground. I have to tether its feet so that it can't get away from me. I take a golden bull, I lift up its neck. I take a knife, I cut the side veins on its neck and collect the blood, and as the blood flows in the bowl, its life ebbs away, I lay its head down. Since I've come in contact with the blood of that animal, I must wash myself again Having done that, I can take the sensor, take burning coals from off the brazen altar, put them in my sensor. Take it behind the veil. I have a special incense in my hands. I drop the incense into the brazen altar coals. They make a cloud of smoke. And I offer a prayer up to the Lord. Hear our voice, O Lord our God, and spare us. And accept in mercy and grace our prayer. For Thou art a God who hears prayer and supplication. Let us not return empty, O King, from before Thy face. For Thou, O Lord, in mercy, hears the prayers of Thy people, Israel. Blessed be the Lord who hears prayers. Let the veil go back. And that smoke causes a cloud to form in the Holy of Holies. So that I don't see the face of God when I return and I'm killed. I come back to the blood of the bullock. I take it into the holy place and go behind the veil. Without looking at the mercy seat, I throw the blood up once on the mercy seat and seven times on the ground in front. Without looking at the mercy seat, I back out of the Holy of Holies. Come from behind the veil. An atonement has been made since I've come in contact with the blood. Must wash again. the people that are gathered at the gate this is the most important time for them because atonement now will be made for the people there's two goats here that I got from you two and I must cast lots I have to determine which goat is for the Lord and which will be sacrificed and which goat is the scapegoat and let go so I do that and the goat that is for the Lord then I take that I bring it over once again I have to control it I have to get it down tie its legs lift up its head put the bowl underneath cut its neck once again its life leaves its body the blood fills the bowl and I lay it down So the people are very anxious to see whether or not I will come out from behind the veil. Once again, I throw the blood up once and seven times on the ground. Much to the relief of the people, atonement has been made for them. Do we have the next slide, please? I would invite you all to stand. The people join with the high priest and say this prayer. I'll start you and you can finish it. Forgive us, our fathers, for we have sinned. Pardon us, O King, for we have transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed be the gracious Lord who multiplies forgiveness. You may be seated. Since I've come in contact with the blood, I have to go back to the laver and wash this time in the ceremony, the high priest goes over to the goat, that is the scapegoat. And he lays his head on the hand of that scapegoat, and he recites the sins of the people. And for Israel, this is a picture of the transference of their sin being placed on the head of that goat. Once he has done that, he then loosens the goat. He gives it to a designated person. That person takes the goat out into the wilderness. Tradition is they take it out about 12 miles. They find a place where there is nothing, preferably a cliff, a hill, someplace to push that goat off. As that goat is being led out of the camp, the people are jeering at it. Get out of here. Go away from here. We never want to see you again. Never come back. And the goat and their sin taken away. After that's done, then the high priest goes into the holy place. He takes off the garments of a regular priest. He washes his body and he puts on his high priestly garments. And I'm simply going to put them over the top of my priestly garments. The first thing that he puts on is a blue robe. And the blue robe, if you notice, has bells on the fringe of it, a blue bell, a blue, and pomegranates, a blue pomegranate, a golden bell, a purple pomegranate, a golden bell, a scarlet pomegranate, a golden bell, and so on around the hem. At the top is a special border that's placed at the top of that robe because the high priest, who is the highest official in Israel, when Jewish people mourn, it's custom for them to mourn and to tear their garments. He can never do that. Even when his two sons were destroyed by God for bringing fire into the tabernacle that was, that was foreign fire from a foreign god, and God killed them, he could not mourn. He could not carry out that. So there's a special uh, border put around that. Over the top, then, of this blue garment, that's what's called the ephod. It's a garment that is made with strands of blue and purple and scarlet and golden thread. Get my thing put together here and on the front of that is a thank you is a area that's called the breastplate and that breastplate has 12 stones each one engraved with the name of the 12 tribes of Israel so he carries his people over his heart Ties all this together with a blue sash. And then on the top of his head, he puts on his high priestly mitre. It has a golden plate on the front of it that it says Holiness to the Lord. And these would be the garments that the high priest would wear every day of the year. There are two bodies of two animals laying over there yet. They are sin offerings and so he has to carry out the sin offerings. Atonement has been made. So he goes back over to the brazen altar. And a sin offering is where the priest will remove the liver and the kidneys, the filtering organs of the body, as well as the fat. If you have an animal and you feed it only enough to stay alive, it looks weak, it looks thin. Fat represents excess or blessing that God has given. So, what he does is he takes those two animals, he removes the liver, the kidneys, the fat. This is the sin offering. He takes it to the brazen altar, and he throws that into the fire. And that makes a cloud of smoke and the sin offering to God. He then takes the body of the bullock and gives it to a designated person. He takes the body of the goat, Gives it to the same person. That person will take that outside of the camp where the ashes from the brazen altar are dumped, and those bodies are burned outside of the camp. By this time, it is starting to become later in the day. The sun is starting to go down. The high priest, after cleansing himself at the laver, he goes in and he makes sure that the menorah is burning filled with oil. He offers up another offering and prayers on the altar of incense and then the final offering of the day is made. There's one animal left at the brazen altar, the ram. He invites the other Levitical priests in. They all gather around that ram. Another one of the priests holds the bowl under the Neck of that lamb, that, that ram, the high priest cuts its neck, collects the blood, and this time the high priest will take that blood and he will sprinkle it on the horns of the brazen altar. And then that blood is poured out at the base of the altar. He goes to the laver. He washes himself. He still has the blood of the bullock and of the ram. He takes those two bowls, he mixes them together. Takes them into the holy place. Throws them up once on the veil and seven times on the ground. Sprinkles it on the horns of the altar of incense. Sprinkles it on the horns of the brazen altar, and pours it out at the base. watches himself at the laver He then takes the body of the ram, picks it up, and places it on the brazen altar, and it becomes a whole burnt offering. The sin offerings are required, the whole burnt offering is a voluntary offering, and it makes a cloud of smoke. He then leads the people out into the camp after giving them a benediction. And this is his benediction to them out of the book of Numbers. The Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord turn his countenance to you and give you peace. Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement has some very interesting meanings For we who have put our faith and trust in Yahshua, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. Remember the principle behind this sacrificial system was Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you on the altar to make a covering for your souls. For it is the blood that makes a covering for your souls. When we keep that in mind we see that the only way to come to God was through the shedding of blood. When you think of the animals there, you might think how cruel to sacrifice those animals like that. And yet, to think of it like that is the wrong way to think. How gracious that God allowed something to die in the place of the people of Israel to be a covering or atonement for sin. For centuries, this ritual was carried out. Yet God spoke of one day when a Messiah would come and he would put an end to all of these ritual sacrifices. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, 10 says yet it pleased the lord to bruise him he has put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin we can imagine ancient israel longing for this time when the fulfillment of these words of isaiah would come to pass and then it happened a child was born to a jewish maiden in the little town of Bethlehem just as Micah the prophet some 800 years prior had prophesied the child's name was Yeshua in Hebrew and Jesus in Greek and he fulfilled Isaiah's expectation as foretold one day as this young man was walking along the Jordan River there was a prophet who was there Known as John the Baptizer, Johann and Zechariah. and when he saw this young man, John: 129, says, he saw him and says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." His statement declared that this person, Yeshua, was the fulfillment of Passover and the Day of Atonement. Yeshua literally means the Lord saves or God is salvation. His name indicated the purpose for which he came. So when we think of the ministry of Yeshua, Jesus, in light of what we've seen here on the Day of Atonement, we see some very interesting things. Recall that the high priest had on the regular garment of a normal priest, That's just exactly what Jesus did. It tells us in Hebrew, he humbled himself. He looked just like any of the other priests. The Lord Jesus took on human flesh and became one of us so that he could carry out and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is the only one who can make complete and sure atonement for sin. He was able to carry out that sacrifice. So literally, the priest was demonstrating to his people what the Messiah was going to do when he wore those simple garments. Philippians 2.7 in the New Testament says, He made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. When we think of the high priestly garments, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, Woven with the blue, the purple, the scarlet, the white, we see them pointing to Yeshua, the Messiah. They show us not only who he is, but what it is he came to do. When we think of the white, it represents purity. When we think of blue, it represents the royalty of a king. When we think of scarlet, we think of our sin. And When we think of the purple, we think of the royalty taking our sin upon himself, to be the payment for it. So our king, if you will, making atonement for our sin. When we look at the blue robe that the high priest wore, we're reminded of a particular incident that happened in Mark chapter 14 and verse 61. And this is just hours before the death of the Messiah, when he stood before Caiaphas, the high priest. And Caiaphas asked Jesus if he was the Christ. If he was the son of god when jesus said i am caiaphas was so angry he took that collar and he literally tore it he was forbidden to do that exodus 28 32 tells us that he was forbidden to do that but when caiaphas tore that robe before the lord jesus the messiah he not only broke the law but he brought an end to the levitical priesthood and the new priest about to inaugurate the new priesthood was standing right there in front of him. That's why John 19, 24 tells us that when Jesus made his ultimate sacrifice, the Roman soldiers, instead of tearing his robe, the robe of the new high priest, they cast lots for it so that it remained intact. When Jesus made that ultimate sacrifice, Mark 15, 37 and 38 tell us that the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. And that's why Hebrews 10, 20 speaks of the Lord Jesus entering into the heavenly holy of holies through the veil that is his very flesh, opening a way for us. In the ritual of the high priest laying his hands on the head of the scapegoat, We also see a picture of what the Messiah would do. Like the scapegoat, the sins of the world were laid on Jesus. At the same time, a change of life occurred. Jesus took our sinful life, and think of it like this. How could you kill him on a Roman cross? The wages of sin is death. He had no sin, but he who knew no sin became sin for us. And when he took our sin upon him... Then he could die. His death gave us eternal life. Jesus made it possible for all of our sins to be removed forever. And that's why Hebrews 8.12 says, And their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. That's good news for us today. We can sit here with our sin forgiven because of what he did. When we think of the body of the bullock and the goat which were taken outside of the camp and burned and the liver and the kidney and the fat burned on the brazen altar, just like Jesus, he was led outside of the city of Jerusalem to be put to death. No doubt on that day of atonement, the people were anxious. Is the high priest going to come from behind the veil? Is atonement going to be made for our sins? Can you imagine the first century believers in Jesus? When his body was placed in that tomb, have I put my faith in the wrong person? Has he been lying to us all of this time? But no doubt when he resurrected from the dead to prove to them, indeed, he has power over sin and death to bring salvation, their faith and their belief was not in vain. When we think of the three sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, they point to exactly what Jesus did for us. The sin offering of the bullock and of the goat, they were required. They had to be done. They had to be carried out. The burn offering was a voluntary offering. Jesus, in obedience to his heavenly Father, dying in our place for our sin. I lay my life down, Jesus said in John 10. No man takes it from me. So today, there is no longer a sacrifice carried out like you saw here today because there's no longer a tabernacle. So if you're Jewish, what do you do on Yom Kippur? There are three services that Jewish people will attend. The Kol Nidre service on the night before Yom Kippur, there's an opportunity to read through a list of 24 sins and beg for God's forgiveness. Some of the Orthodox will sing a song called the Ko Nidre. With the singing of this song, my sins are forgiven. There's even a group out in New York, the Hasidim. They will carry out a ceremony where they take a chicken, they wave it over the head of themselves, or their loved ones, and I have a picture of that. This was given to me by one of the Orthodox people who lives here in Las Vegas and they say with the shedding of this animal's blood my sins are forgiven and then they take it to a kosher butcher and he cuts the throat and the blood is shed where is the sacrifice to be carried out according to the law in jerusalem where at the tabernacle there is no place and so what rabbinical judaism has come up with is praying going through this ritual But what does it say in the Bible? In Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 and 2, it says, Is the arm of the Lord short that he cannot help? No. Is the ear of the Lord heavy that he cannot hear? No. But your iniquity and your sins have separated between me and you so that I cannot hear you. They can pray and ask God for forgiveness all they want. But it will not take their sin away. What about mitzvahs? In these ten days of awe, they are going back over their life. Have I done enough works so that my life will be written in the book of life for the coming year? What does Isaiah 64, 6 say? But we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our mitzvahs, all of our good works, are like a filthy rag. And we all do fade as a leaf. So what's left? Isaiah 53, 6. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the chastisement of our peace is upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. You sit here today, if you are a believer in Christ, and you have a great, rich blessing. He died in your place. He has given you a new life. And he has literally written his commandment on your heart and giving you the Holy Spirit of God to live by it. We have a, a task to do in loving our Jewish neighbors to life and sharing the gospel with them. I want to take a just a few more minutes and go back and look at these seven appointments to see which ones have been kept and which ones are yet to be kept. When we think of the night of Passover, when the blood of that Lamb was on the doorpost and the lintel. Was that God keeping his appointment between himself and his people? The answer is no, it's the blood of an animal. Fast forward, 32 AD, the very night of Passover, the Lord Jesus hung on that cross, shedding his own blood, keeping that appointment. The feast or appointment of unleavened bread, one day later. Remember the last Passover Jesus was at? What did he say about this bread? This bread with no leaven, no representation of sin, this is my body. One day later, where was his body? Laying in a rich man's tomb, keeping that appointment between himself and his people. When we think of this third feast or appointment that always happens on what day of the week? Sunday? The first gleaning of the barley harvest? The high priest is out there gleaning that. What did Jesus do three days after his death on the first day of the week? rose from the dead, keeping this appointment between himself and his people. When we think of this fourth holiday, Shavuot, when Jesus rose from the dead, he was here for 40 days. He said, go and wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. His followers on this holiday of Shavuot, the day of Pentecost, are gathered together, and what happens? The Spirit of God comes. This is the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 2, it gives us that account. As we read on later in Acts, what happens? Not only are Jewish believers in Jesus a member of the body of Christ, but Gentiles as well. And just as this was given, someday, prophecy tells us, it will be taken out of the world. And bread that is leavened is a perfect picture because we are not perfect yet, right? Not until we receive our new body when we are taken from this earth so this was instituted on that day of pentecost and it is yet to be fulfilled what about yam trua or rosh hashanah the blowing of the trumpet joel chapter 2 tells us about a time when the trumpet will be blown introducing to us the time of israel's trouble and the things that are going to happen in the future so this has not taken place yet when that takes place, Zechariah 12.10 says of the Jewish people, they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn as one mourns for his firstborn, turning their hearts to the Messiah. Obviously, that has not taken place. But when it does take place, Zechariah 13.1 says, then a fountain will be opened up for cleansing of sin. It's not water. It's got to be what? Blood. For the house of David, the leadership in Israel, and for the inhabitants of jerusalem the rank and file jewish people when all israel will be saved as it says in romans 11 that has not taken place yet once israel is saved and they have called for their messiah to come back and he fights their battle he comes and in the book of revelation it tells us that he comes and he sets up a millennial kingdom that lasts for how long a thousand years and then the events that happen in the end so this has not happened yet So these first three have been fulfilled. The fourth one, we live in that time. And the last three are yet to be fulfilled. We've gone over a lot. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Pastor, for allowing us to be here and to do this today. And I will turn the service back over to you. Thank you. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Oasis Online. If this message was an encouragement to you, would you send me an email and let me know at pastor OBCLV.org. Before you go, go check us out at OasisBaptistChurch.org. And if we can be of any help to you or an encouragement to you, please let us know. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.